Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the sixth in a series of podcasts over the coming weeks, promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launch December 22nd. Registration to join Lommer's Legion is now open. Visit www.seminolewars.us for details. When you start the virtual challenge, you may think that your feet or back ache after the first few days of walking or running. Well, think again. Imagine you are a survivor of the Dade Battle in Bushnell and must hightail it back to Tampa, some 60 miles, in 30 hours, in 1830s era and quality army boots. Listen on to find out who this survivor was and what we know about his sudden sojourn. Historians have asserted that only two soldiers survived to tell the tale of the famous Dade Massacre in present-day Bushnell on December 28, 1835. On that day, Seminole Indians and their black Seminole allies ambushed a column of soldiers marching along the Fort King Road to relieve an army garrison to the north. One account acknowledged that at least four soldiers initially survived the attack. Private Joseph Wilson jumped over the breastwork to escape back to Fort Rook in present-day Tampa, but he was shot dead by an Indian who sprang from behind a tree. Two others, Private Edward de Courcy and Private Ransom Clark, stayed still as possums and waited until dark before stealthily setting out back to Fort Brook. However, the next day, a Seminole on horseback spotted the two along the road. De Courcy and Clark separated to avoid joint capture. Clark avoided the horseman. De Courcy did not. A shot rang out, and Clark presumed his comrade had been killed. Clark eventually stumbled into the fort a few days later. He was soon joined by Private Joseph Sprague. Both briefed the fort commander on the ambush. Later, Clark provided a written account of the battle, while Sprague, illiterate, could not. Besides the two soldiers, a mulatto slave, Louis Pacheco, who had interpreted for the command, left with the Seminole as a captive. This is what modern historians have said, and this is what has been passed along to the public for many years now. Historians have dismissed the survival account of one Private John Thomas, who was the first soldier back to Fort Brooke, in fact, and who first reported the ambush. He had injured himself on the march north a few days earlier and, the historians say, had been forced by necessity to return to Fort Brooke, consequently missing the battle entirely. Autodidact and longtime living historian and reenactor Jesse Marshall had long accepted this account, along with most others who'd studied the battle. That is, until one day, a passing comment from a fellow living historian lodged a seed of doubt. In due course, that seed sprouted into an oak tree of misgivings in the mind of the naturally curious Marshall. He began to investigate in earnest the primary sources in the historical record and began to question the prevailing assumptions about Private Thomas. Jesse Marshall joins us today to explain how he came to accept that Private Thomas had indeed been at the battle and why the historians got it so wrong. And not only that, that he had indeed traversed 60 miles in 30 hours to reach Fort Brooke with the first reports about the annihilation of Dade's column. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. Jesse, briefly summarize the battle and then tell us about the soldier survivors who came to Fort Brooke. 
At Dade's Battle, December 28, 1835, the United States Army suffered the fatal loss of eight officers and 97 enlisted men, and three privates alone survived. It's Ransom Clark of Company B, 2nd Artillery, attached to C Company of that regiment during the march. John Thomas, also of B Company, 2nd Artillery, and also attached to C Company of 2nd Artillery. And then of B Company, 3rd Artillery, one private, Joseph Sprague of Vermont, survived. So of the three surviving privates, two of them were actually members of a company that was not in the battle. The rest of their company under their captain, Brevet Major Belton, was at Tampa. So there were no survivors of C Company 2nd Artillery. The accounts that spread widely came from Private Ransom Clark. Why was that? Most of the accounts of the battle come from Ransom Clark. And when I say that, I've come to notice that it's not necessarily that he wrote them. He's being interviewed by newspapermen and officers so some of the accounts have differing details and you just have to assume it's from perhaps the perception of the recorder as to what to write down. There's a generality in their description of the action and its conclusion. Why was Clark's account so important? Clark was particularly important as a witness because he was evidently the only one of those three survivors that remained on the battleground throughout the action. And he was on the ground when the battle ended and the surviving wounded were dispatched and he himself was shot again and left for dead. And then he and Private Edward de Courcy discovered each other alive and headed toward Tampa Bay. Subsequently, de Courcy and Clark ran into a mounted Seminole. They divided on the trail and went different ways. And Clark says the Indian evidently followed de Courcy and he heard a gunshot. So evidently that was the end of de Courcy. He was never heard from again in any case. So he's shown as killed. And it's not clear that his body was recovered either, although there is a statement by at least one account that there was a body found south of the battleground somewhat that may have been de Courcy, but that's not clear. Regardless, Clark himself mentions that the other two survivors in one of his accounts, or credited to him, states that the other two men survived by climbing trees and thereby made their escape. Jesse, you note that Clark describes how the other two survived by being in a tree. That would seem to settle it. Two other soldiers thereby survived. But that's not how it came to be remembered by historians. So we come into the 20th century and we have some marvelous work about Dade's battle, particularly the work of Frank Laumer, Massacre, published in 1968, excellent work. And in 1995, he produced a much fleshed out version of it, Dade's Last Command. And since then, he produced a work of historical fiction called Nobody's Hero, which is based on the life of Ransom Clark and his survival of Dade's Massacre and other incidents. And Mr. Laumer makes the statement in Massacre that he continued with through his work, there were only two survivors of the battle, that John Thomas was not in the battle. Now, Mr. Laumer was not the first to put that out. A year before Massacre came out, John K. Mahan, in his excellent history of the Second Seminole War, states that there were only two survivors of the battle. I don't know where exactly he got that. However, there was a popular pamphlet published by an ordnance sergeant serving at St. Augustine. It was Florida War Record, Ponce de Leon Land, something to that effect. And in that, that ordnance sergeant telling many old stories of the Seminole War says there's only two survivors of the battle. So by the time Mr. Laumer produced his works, there had been some statements to the effect that only two of the three survivors of Dade's command had actually been in the battle. 
Okay, but what is the official report of the battle state? We go to the official report of the action by Brevet Major Belton, the company commander of both Clark and Thomas, who had detached them and several other men of the company to flesh out Dade's detachment to bring it to about 100 men. And the official report, written on January 1st, 1836 at Fort Brook, it was written after all three of those survivors of the detachment had come in. First, it says Thomas came in on the 29th of December, which is the day after the battle. It states essentially that the survivors had lived by imitating death and that Thomas found in his opponent a Seminole who he recognized and for whom he had held an axe at Fort Brook a week before the battle. And that Seminole let Thomas go after Thomas gave him $6 that he had in his pocket. That's pretty much all it says. $6? That was equivalent to a month's pay. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good bit of money. But obviously, the familiarity that is suggested by the official report between the warrior and Thomas is certainly reported because Belton felt it was a significant cause for Thomas's survival. He then goes on to talk about the massacre of the wounded that Clark witnessed and survived. You know, Clark was terribly injured himself and was playing dead, so he didn't really witness as much as you would imagine. He was laying in a pool of his own blood and trying not to move. Frank Laumer, as we know, wrote extensively about Ransom Clark. Did anyone write about Joseph Sprague, for instance? There is a biography of Joseph Sprague, the other survivor, by Nathan White, published in 1981, which is actually pretty good because Sprague had served in the War of 1812. He was a career private. In fact, he continued in service through the Seminole War. Both accounts are skeptical of Private Thomas actually being in the battle. Why were they skeptical? In both Mr. Lammer's works and Mr. White's, the conclusion is stated unequivocally that, that any idea that Thomas was in the battle must be false because he could not have reached Tampa Bay the day after the battle. It's not possible. And that's generally been accepted as the case. 60 miles, that is quite a distance to go overnight. So that became the conventional wisdom, that it wasn't possible to do that. And that's what you believed. At one time, and for many years, I just accepted that Thomas was not in the battle. But a friend of mine, Kent Lowe, mentioned to me that Thomas was quoted about how many Indians were in the attack by Woodburn Potter, one of General Gaines's staff officers. And it just gave me one of those, huh, moments. <laughs> so that planted a seed of doubt. So over a period of years, reading multitude of sources and anything that mentioned Private Thomas, I just kind of clipped it and set it aside. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I looked at it all and I, I recognized that in the totality of it, there was a powerful case to be made that Private Thomas was indeed in the battle. And the case is predicated principally upon the statements of officers that were at Fort Brooke between December 28th, 1835 and January 1st, 1836. Give us more details on why the historians were skeptical. Nathan White, in his biography of Sprague, is the most vociferous in attempting to prove that Thomas was not in the battle. Mr. Laumer's work, Massacre and Daylight's Command, just accepted that he was not and produced a narrative about what likely transpired. But it's Mr. White who actually makes the argument against him being in the battle. Mr. Laumer just accepts that he wasn't. And Mr. White's claim is that he would have had to run from the battlefield of Tampa Bay, the 65 miles, to reach camp for the day after the battle. And that's just unlikely, given that in May of 1837, Thomas was provided with a certificate of disability by the U.S. Army and allowed an early discharge for having injured his back while serving with Dade's command in lifting the six-pounder gun out of the Hillsborough River Ford on Christmas Day, 1835, and that due to that injury, he was three-fourths disabled. 
And, of course, Mr. White's point is that how could he, three-fourths disabled, run 65 miles down to Tampa Bay? Mr. Lamar kind of accepted that because in his narrative, he gives the idea that Thomas must have been left behind by Dade on the banks of the Hillsborough after that injury, and that he subsequently slowly made his way back down to Tampa and reached it on the 29th. But there is no historical source to confirm that. If he had been sent back, it's somewhat surprising that in hostile territory, Dade would have sent him back alone, and or that there'd been no record of Dade sending him back in a note or anything like that. Yes, uh, on both points. First, Dade was in communication with Fort Brooke through the 25th of December. There were two companies that were expected to arrive at Tampa Bay that were going to follow him up the road under Grayson and Mountfort. And in Mountfort's report, he states that it was on December 25th that he actually was intending to take up the trail to catch up with Dade, but that during the 25th, they heard at Tampa Bay that Dade had already crossed the Hillsborough River, so they were farther than he could reach in one day's trek. So there was evidently somebody going back and forth between Dade's command and Tampa Bay up to the 25th when Dade crossed the Hillsborough River, according to the Fisher Report. Why wouldn't that person have brought Thomas back with him if he was left behind, etc.? But that's an aside. Even if Thomas was traveling alone, one would think that the courier would have at least made some mention of it. Well, yes. The Fisher Report mentions Private Aaron Jewell. And that Jewel subsequently went back and returned to Dade's command and was killed on the 28th. So Private Jewel stayed with Dade. This would have been a good reason for Dade to send a message back with the injured soldier, Private Thomas. You found something else that didn't quite add up. This from the surgeon's account. About the surgeon's decision, well, in Mr. Lauer's narrative, he gives this idea that Surgeon Gatlin examined Thomas and was three-fourths disabled and he couldn't continue. Well, I would just like to point out that the certificate of disability that that's all predicated upon was written in May of 1837, not in December of 1835. It was not written by Surgeon Gatlin, this assistant surgeon that was with Dade's command. It was written by army surgeons at St. Augustine's garrison. It was written over a year and a half after the incidents described in it, during which year and a half Private Thomas had remained in U.S. Army service on active duty. So you see the assumption that he was immediately disabled I'm not saying he didn't hurt his back. I assume that that document has value as a contemporary record of Thomas's military service. Does he hurt his back crossing Hillsborough River? I believe it. However, the important point I'm making is that he was only three quarters disabled by that injury a year and a half later. And according to the informal journal notes of Dr. N.S. Jarvis, serving in St. Augustine at that time. Jarvis states in his journal that among the sick and dying at St. Augustine was Private Thomas, survivor of Dade's command, whose disease was carrying him away, was exacerbated by drunkenness, evidently. Intemperance, I guess that's the nicer way to put it. If Thomas had hurt his back as badly as the surgeon makes it out to be, certainly Dade would have mentioned it in one of his notes that he sent back. Again, that's two things at work. The assumption that Thomas was left behind, which again is an assumption, and that no one else was communicating. But the official report is clear that Private Jewell, and also there was at least one junior officer from Fort Brook who accompanied Dade on his first day's march and then came back to Fort Brook. Like others, you were skeptical that Private Thomas could have made the trek in 60 to 65 miles overnight. 
Well, he certainly didn't arrive before the afternoon of the 29th of December. However, you're also skeptical that if he hadn't been at the battlefield, he took an awfully long time to get back to Fort Brooke while traversing through Indian country, especially if he was conveying correspondence from Dade back to Fort Brooke. Well, that would sort of be my point that uh, we don't have any evidence that they gave Thomas any such message. And even if he did, if we accept Mr. Lowry's narrative or the historical conclusions of Mr. White, Thomas was the worst courier, perhaps, in the history of the U.S. Army who took four days to cover 25 miles. <laughs> but again, speculation aside, Dade was in communication, at least before crossing the Hillsborough River, and the statement that Thomas was three-quarters disabled on that date is not really what that document says. Again, it was, it was a year and a half later, and the document was stating that he was three-quarters disabled in May 1837, and gives as a reason a back injury while serving with Dade's command. doesn't say that he was three-quarters disabled in December 1835. If that were the case, then one would have to wonder at the efficiency of the military. Why would they retain a three-quarters disabled man in active duty for a year and a half in a war zone? Now, we could assume that's the case, and I'm not saying he didn't injure his back, because again, it's a contemporary document and one of value. But I think What's happened is there's a conflation between inferring that that document is referring to Thomas's condition on the afternoon of December 25th, 1835, and combining that with, say, the conclusions of Nathan White that it's impossible for Thomas to have been in the battle despite any evidence to the contrary. We do want to give significant weight to Frank Laumer's account because he studied this for decades. How did Mr. Laumer reconcile the fact that he didn't believe Thomas had been in the battle, but nevertheless, Thomas said he bought his life from a Seminole? Since he accepted that Thomas was not in the battle, Mr. Laumer concludes that the interaction with the warrior must have been between the Hillsborough River and Tampa Bay. But that's not stated in the official report of the battle by Major Belton. It, again, paraphrasing it, it merely says the survivors imitated death. And while Thomas was being partly stripped or stifled, evidently the word is not clear in the original document. It's been transcribed, either stripped or stifled by different readers of the document. The Indian recognized it. Belton doesn't say that that happened in any particular place. That is true. And Mr. Lamar was the first kind of to state that Thomas was not in the battle, but that's based on earlier statements that there were only two survivors of the battle. And since Clark and Sprague were credited with being in the battle, Mr. Lamar's conclusion was that Thomas must be the odd man out, particularly since that document from May 1837 says he was disabled on the march. But it doesn't say that. It says he was disabled a year and a half after the march from injuries sustained during the march. Were there any contemporaneous accounts that described Thomas as having been in the battle? Besides the official report, we have the letters by several of the junior officers serving at Fort Brooke when the battle happened. And they, of course, sent a flurry of letters around the country to relatives of the deceased and to their own relatives about what had happened. A fragment of a letter by Lieutenant John Grayson of Company A, 2nd Artillery, is of particular importance because Grayson's company arrived at Fort Brooke and was ready to march with Mountford's company, perhaps the follow-up date, that they were getting ready to set out on December 30th. 
Thomas arrived at Fort Brooke on the 29th, and according to the fragment of a letter published in the newspapers that was written by Grayson, evidently on the 29th of December, Grayson points out that they were intended to march the next day, but after a soldier came in on the 29th and told them of the disaster that had befallen Dade, they did not take up the line of march, because of course then they might have been next. A private of Grayson named Nelson Maybe kept a journal, and part of it was published in some northern newspapers in later years, and he mentions essentially the same thing that his company commander Grayson did about the survivor that came in on the 29th. Well, let's go back to the official report, and the survivor that came in on the 29th with news of the battle was Private Thomas. Besides the fragment of Grayson's letter, we also have letters from Benjamin Alvord, who was the lieutenant of Major Dade's own company, which did not march with Dade. It stayed at Fort Brooke, Company B, 4th Infantry. And Alvord wrote letters and mentions very specifically the statement regarding the battle of the, the number of Indians that ambushed the column, etc., and that the man that escaped and arrived on the 29th had left the field when there were about 10 men still resisting. In another letter he was writing, evidently on the 30th, Albert states, Lo, another man has just arrived who confirms all the particulars of the previous. I'm paraphrasing. And that was Ransom Clark. Ransom Clark had been painfully wounded, several wounds, and it took him days and days to get back to Fort Brooke, uh, crawling a good part of the way by his own account because his leg was useless to him. Private Sprague, the third survivor, he arrived on the 1st of January, and that's when Major Belton compiled his official report based on the statements of all three men. These letters that were published in the papers by Alvord and Grayson, and then another one written by Mountfort that also mentions that all three of the survivors agree about the particulars of the battle, and all three were wounded. In fact, that's another point I'd like to bring up, that almost every contemporary source says that Thomas was wounded in the thigh. These contemporaneous accounts are most curious, given that, as Nathan White notes, Thomas would have had to traverse 60 to 65 miles overnight. Nathan White, his point in 1981, is Thomas couldn't have made it. He would have had to run. Well, that's not true. 65 miles is, is a healthy distance. Now, I wrote a brief paper a few years ago with some collected data about Thomas and the battle. It's one of the things I did in the paper, just to answer my own questions. Look in the military zone documents to see. The military zone official documents describe what a soldier kit would consist of. But we also know from history that a soldier fleeing the battlefield often would drop everything that's not necessary so that he could not slow himself down. At the time that he escaped the battlefield, Private Thomas was probably largely divested of equipment. We know, too, that he was essentially captured because the description was that he was imitating death. At the time, he was secured by a warrior who recognized him and allowed him to escape. Since that was evidently at the point at which perhaps 10 men were still resisting, one would ask the question, well, well, how could that have transpired? Well, how did it transpire? Private Clark gives us the answer. Most of the fighting on the battleground was in skirmish order. Even in the tail end of the fight, when the survivors of the ambush had built the triangular log breastwork, in his various accounts, Clark clarifies that Captain Gardner, who essentially commanded during the battle since Major Dade was killed at it in the ambush, that Gardner had the most of the able-bodied men fan out as skirmishers into the woods surrounding that breastwork, and that most of the fighting was seminal surrounding the work and, over time, picking off those troops in their own little coverts behind trees. And Clark himself says once he was shot, that's when he crawled back in the breastwork. And over a period of time, any men that were left outside 
were recalled into it. And about 30 men and a few officers were found dead in the breastwork or next to it. Gives you an idea of how many wounded men and survivors there were in the end out of the 108 or so. If someone like Private Thomas was on the outskirts as a skirmisher, this would support his account of meeting the Indian. I would assume that if the incident transpired on the battleground as described by the fish report, Thomas was not anywhere near the breastwork. Perhaps he was playing dead in his position 50 or 100 yards in the woods beyond the breastwork. He was perhaps overtaken in his opponent. And given the nature of the battle with both the Indians and the troops largely scattered in skirmish order, you see the warrior might have been entirely alone when he allowed Thomas to escape. Of course, that's purely speculation, but the possibility. Without a better way to explain how Thomas knew about the ambush. The presumption is that when the Seminole accosted him, when Thomas was already returning on the Fort King Road back to Fort Brooke, he then spoke to him and learned of what happened. Did many Seminoles know English? Because the soldiers didn't, which is why they had Louis Pacheco as the interpreter. For the most part, I don't see a lot of references to the Seminoles speaking English or even caring to learn it. There seems to have been a great deal of enthusiasm in Sprague's work about Tiger Tail because he spoke English fluently and evidently was one of the few Seminoles that could or did. In contrast, no words would have had to be spoken if this had happened at the battlefield. I would imagine it was wide-eyed, Thomas, of course, assuming the worst. And let's assume the warrior was, the word that Belton used is evidently in contention in his original handwritten report. He was either stripping Thomas, who was imitating death, or he was stifling him, as in he was, which sounds almost like he was choking him. But it's immaterial by and large, because the contemporaries that are recording the document all believe that this happened on the battlefield. But that at some point, the recognition was made, A, that he was alive and B, that he was the guy that had been friendly to the Indian at Fort Brooke the week prior and had given him a helping hand and put a handle on his act. We have this curious notice that Thomas gave the Indian $6 and the Indian let him go. Unfortunately, there is no other record of what had transpired between those two at Fort Brooke, but perhaps the Indian had paid Thomas for helping the axe, and Thomas, by handing the Indian his $6, Thomas was giving the Indian his money back, as it were, and perhaps that was the means by which they communicated. Obviously, when Thomas was allowed to run away, that communicated everything. Anything's possible, but because of the way Belton wrote it, that Thomas gave him the $6, sounds to me like he offered it. If we accept that this situation did happen on the battlefield, which is what all the contemporaries accept, then we have essentially the case that Private Thomas was to all sense and purposes he was captured. And if he had attempted to continue resistance, he might have killed that warrior, but he would have probably been killed himself. But again, we don't know. How do we know there weren't more than one warrior nearby and uh, just this one allowed him to go? And I only bring that up because Luis Pacheco, the Negro interpreter with Dade's command, after the ambush struck, he hit the dirt and was quickly overrun. And Pacheco, in his own account, says that the Seminoles were arguing over whether to shoot him or not. Finally, one warrior says, well, he's not a white man, so he's not our enemy necessarily. So they didn't shoot him and carried him off with him. Perhaps something similar happened with Thomas, but it's not recorded in the fish report. How much circumstantial evidence is there to corroborate that Thomas had actually been in the battle? And that despite having a wound to his thigh, it might not have been debilitating enough to stop him from getting back to Fort Brooke in about 24 hours. 
we have statements by John Bimrose, the medical steward at Fort Drane, who after the battle with Bakuchi a few days after Dave's battle, noted that the Indians' rifle bullets were of such a small caliber that the injuries were frequently trifling, and that even in the midst of the battle, many of the men that were shot only fell after being hit three or four times from loss of blood. So the Indians' rifle balls from Bimrose and some other accounts, 30 to 40 caliber, essentially like being shot with a large pellet gun. If it didn't strike a major organ, then you're probably relatively safe. If Thomas was more seriously injured in the thigh from the battle, wouldn't that show up in the official records? The military kept pretty good records at the time. They kept regimental returns. Every month they had to turn in a return of the personnel of the regiment, where they were, what they were doing. And they also had to turn in post returns for every fort. So I looked at the Fort Brook post returns and I looked at the 2nd Artillery's regimental return for December 1835 and January, February 1836. And they usually would show wounded men as present sick. So Company B, 2nd Artillery, only had one man listed present sick in January, February of 36. And that was certainly Private Ransom Clark. And we know that because in March of 1836, Captain James Barr of the Louisiana Regiment of Volunteers posted at Fort Brook, interviewed Clark in the hospital at Fort Brook. I believe it was on March 16th. Private Thomas was by that time serving in northern Florida. And evidently he and Sprague had accompanied General Gaines's force out of Tampa in in February 1836, it strikes me that their injuries were not life-threatening and probably minor. The long-standing argument has been that he could not have traversed that distance in the time available. However, upon closer examination, you say he could have easily done it at a very modest pace. The battle commenced sometime between 8 and 10 a.m. on the 28th of December, 1835. And one of the contemporaries at Fort Brook, one of those letters, mentions Thomas' arrival on the afternoon of the 29th. And that when he arrived at Fort Brook, he was thoroughly jaded and very tired. Jaded as in a jaded horse, practically used up. So even if you give him a scanty 24 hours, divide the 24 hours by the 65, and you see that if Thomas moved at a pace of about two miles an hour, he could have made the distance within 30 hours or so. It's not clear at all, by the way, when he left the battleground. When calculating distance and time, one has to account for whether Thomas traveled on the Fort King Road or maybe crossed in a shortcut across country. What do we know? Unfortunately, there's not really any statement about Thomas's method or mode, whether he followed the road principally, whether he followed the track of the road through the woods, isn't really made clear by the official reports. I would have to assume, however, that if he did indeed make the trek from the battleground to Fort Brook in the 24 to 30 hour period, it is suggested that he probably used the road to a great extent. That's not necessarily because he couldn't have gone cross country just as easily in this sense. Fort King Road was a blazed trail that carts and wagons, horsemen and footmen could move along without any difficulty or confusion about their route and with a minimum of physical difficulty. But you could cross through the pine barrens just as easily on foot, especially after they'd been burned and divested of undergrowth. Thomas, if he just simply knew his cardinal directions, he could have theoretically just passed over the sandy pine barrens parallel of the road and might have even made better time than if he had taken the road. But that's purely speculation to what he did do. And while traveling that distance may seem improbable to us here in the 21st 
century and a time when people may get into their car to drive one block to go to the convenience store to pick up some milk. Back in Private Thomas's time, people walked. That's how they got to places. There wasn't any question made that he had made the trek. As difficult as it obviously is, two to three miles an hour, 65 miles, very possible to do in a day. Jesse, what historical observations do we have about the character of Private Thomas? At a certain point in time, Thomas was employed as a surgeon steward at some of the forts. A comrade of his, John Bimrose, medical steward of the 2nd Artillery, Bimrose in his memoir says he knew Thomas when they served together at Fort Greene after the Dade battle. And he says Thomas was a quiet man. He went about his work mechanically. And Bimrose claims that he asked Thomas one time if he intended to re-enlist in the Army when his time was up. And Bimrose says he was rather surprised when Thomas said, oh, yes, he certainly did intend to re-enlist. And Bimrose was rather shocked and says, well, why would you do such a thing? And Thomas said, well, to have my revenge. So Bemrose's uh, opinion was that Thomas was a man, a quiet soldier who, within his silent demeanor, was the heart of a lion, who, if he could have, would have gladly engaged in battle with the Seminoles again, although there's no evidence particularly that he was in any subsequent combat actions with them before his death in September 1837 of disease while serving with Captain Elias Gould's company of Florida Veteran Volunteers, the U.S. Army. And you're confident that Private Thomas was in the battle. Based on the historical evidence of contemporaries, my conclusion is that Private Thomas was almost certainly in the battle. He was credited by his contemporaries as being wounded in action on the 28th of December. He's quoted by officers at Fort Brooke, more than one, about the conditions of the battleground and the death of certain officers. He had knowledge of the battle. He was considered a combatant. I take the evidence for what it is, and I recognize that historically we have have to use evidence, and that sometimes we have nothing but bad evidence about historical things, but the evidence is what we have. However, I feel that given the balance of the official record of the battle by Major Belton and the several personal documents, letters, and journals by officers and enlisted men at Fort Brooke, there's a pretty tremendous case to be made that Private Thomas was a veteran of the battle, deserves to be considered as such, and indeed to have been wounded in action. Your open-mindedness to following the evidence to wherever it takes you is quite commendable, given that you started this project believing Private Thomas could not have possibly been in the battle. I had no question in my mind when I started that Thomas was not in the battle, but after collecting and collating the information, I believe that he almost certainly was. What became of Thomas after the battle? Subsequently, Thomas was discharged from the service of the Army in mid-1837. But by the way, three-quarters disabled, but what did he do? Within weeks, he enlisted in a company of Florida volunteers at St. Augustine in U.S. Army service, and he died of disease while he was in that service. That also explains why he was still in the military hospital at St. Augustine, even months after his official discharge from the Army. He was in the service of the Army as a Florida volunteer when he finally succumbed. Why did you take on this project? I was inspired to write the paper for three reasons. Number one, because I believe that Private Thomas essentially has been written out of the history which he was so much a part of namely the battle. Number two, the recognition that he was wounded in action in that battle. Even if he was not the bravest man in the field, we don't know one way or the other how he behaved in the action, but we know he was there and he was wounded. And third, the fact that Thomas was a forgotten fatality of the war, that he was in the service of the Florida troops when he died of disease. And of course, since the records of the dead among the militia and volunteer troops that comprised the majority of Seminole War fatalities have never been compiled, I think it's important 
important to make notice that Thomas was one of potentially hundreds of unknown fatalities of the war. That sure does seem like he got a raw deal from history. I think he got the raw deal. I don't know what Private Thomas would think, whether he got a bigger raw deal by his military service, or obviously, in that case, he certainly did, because it ended up killing him, essentially, or whether he would have been displeased at how his historical record has been managed in the 20th century. Do we know if Private Thomas is buried under one of the three pyramids where the remains of Dade's men are, in what today is the St. Augustine National Cemetery? Unfortunately, we do not know where he's buried. There were notices in national newspapers regarding his death, that he was one of the survivors of Dade's battle and he had died in Florida, but there is no specific notice of a place of burial. Jesse Marshall, thanks for your yeoman's work in finding this out about Private Thomas and telling the world what you learned. And again, I don't want to take full credit for resurrecting the idea of Thomas's participation in the battle. I myself, over a period of nearly 30 years, have had other people tell me that they had seen individual anecdotal references to Thomas being in the battle, which they found at odds with the accepted historical record. And all I did was start taking notes on the subject and compiling all these disparate sources to strike at something approximating the truth. Thanks for joining us again for The Seminole Wars. Well, thank you, Patrick. You have an excellent day. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.